In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. For nearly four decades, composer Joel McNeely has scored projects spanning television and film, with one of his first projects being the sequel to Splash for the Disney Sunday Night Movie in 1988. Since, he has contributed numerous scores for The Mouse House, ranging from TV sequels to The Parent Trap in the late 80s to adventure epic Iron Will, the 2003 film Adaptation to Holes, and the Tinkerbell series of hit direct-to-video movies. Joel and I talk about his early musical influences, including encounters with and collaborations with legends in the industry, entering working for the Walt Disney Company in the late 80s, composing Return to Neverland, one of his best pieces of work in my opinion, as well as Iron Will, and much more. I'm excited to bring on to Notably Disney composer Joel McNeely. Well, when thinking back to the music of many of our childhoods, uh, those of us in our 20s and 30s and 40s, I mean, the scores of Joel McNeely instantly come to mind. I think of projects like Iron Will and Flipper, Return to Neverland, Holes, among many others, uh, including a number of Disney direct-to-video animated features as well. Uh, he's an Emmy Award-winning composer behind the early 90s television series, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And more recently, uh, as we were talking about prior to recording, he has composed episodes of The Orville. And today on Notably Disney, we will discuss Joel's immense career, including working for Disney, of course. Uh, and we're going to spotlight a couple of his really spectacular scores, Iron Will and Return to Neverland. And uh, as a consumer of, of music over my life, I'm, I'm very familiar with your work, and it really is a treat to, to be able to talk with you today. So welcome to Notably Disney, Joel. Thank you, Brett. Appreciate it. Well, I'd love for us to begin really at the origins of your musical experiences. Uh, and I recognize that you had uh, quite a musical upbringing in a place that actually has a lot of significance to me as well. So I did all of my graduate education in Madison, Wisconsin, and I know that's uh, very much part of your uh, roots. Can you talk about 
what, what some of the more salient aspects of your musical journey were uh, in those early years? Sure. Well, um, there are pictures of my, my parents have of me from the time I was maybe two or three years old sitting at the piano and not playing, I'm sure, but banging on it, doing what, what kids do. But I, I was just definitely drawn to music from the time I could walk. And I remember my father went to New York one time on a business trip and he brought back, I, I couldn't have been more than four, but I remember it exactly. He brought back a, an LP, a classical LP that was for kids, it had classical music on it, and it had a little baton with it. And you were supposed to conduct the music. And man, was that a good gift because I just jumped right into that. I was all about wanting to conduct. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I say this a lot, you know, you don't choose music, it chooses you. Um, I definitely feel that way. I was, I kind of feel like I was born this way. And um, I was lucky to have parents that were both musical musicians, really, but not professional musicians. And my dad was in the, uh, on the faculty at UW-Madison um, in the uh, communications and drama department. So, you know, it was a hev heavily involved in the arts family. We were always, they were always involved. My dad directed the college musicals. Um, so dad was always off to rehearsal at night to, to whatever musical he was directing. And there were some of the great ones, you know, uh, Camelot and Gypsy, um, Most Happy Fella, uh, some really, and, and I would get to go to rehearsals and just sit and listen and, and um, that, that all contributes. And then, you know, you, you find your own journey and um, I don't know, Madison was a really terrific place to grow up, I felt. Have you been back since they've opened up the newer building for the School of Music? I was back a year ago, exactly a year ago this month, but I, I have not seen it. Um, sadly, I don't know anybody at the, at the school to, to get a tour. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a place that's very dear to my heart. And as you know, a great place to live. Yeah, I had a nice five years there, and I, I don't miss walking up uh, Bascom Mall, <laughs> which for <laughs> listeners, it's a it's a very very steep hill. <laughs> so I was right in the education building. Um, if you might know where that is on the on the northern side of that mall, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a it's a very nice place. And Joel, I understand that in this process of becoming acquainted with with music at a young age, you also have the opportunity to become connected with some of the greats in, in the world of music, including, if I'm not mistaken, Elmer Bernstein. Right, right. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, well, my father was kind of an unusual guy in that he was a professor at, at Wisconsin, as I've said. Um, but before I was born, he, he started selling scripts and as a writer and he sold scripts to uh, Playhouse 90 and uh, the Hallmark Hall of Fame. Um, uh, later on shows like The Twilight Zone, he wrote an episode of that. Um, a lot of episodic TV and more and more he started traveling to the West Coast and getting writing gigs. 
um, he got a, a steady writing gig on a show called Marcus Welby MD. And uh, the producers of that, after a few years, it was a pretty successful show. And they decided they'd give my dad his own show as a spinoff of that. And it was called Owen Marshall Counselor at Law. And so my dad created that and it was the same team as Marcus Welby. And so we made a deal because none of us wanted to move to California, but the deal was we'd go out for a year and see how everybody felt about it. And at the end of the year, we could come back if we to Wisconsin if we wanted to. Um, so we did that. And in the course of that year, they he, he shot the pilot and the series and um, had the good sense to hire Elmer Bernstein to write the, the main title and the, and the pilot episode. And Elmer knew what I was a young aspiring musician, I guess my father had bragged about me or something. And, uh, and so he invited me to the session and, um, you know, there was a real lightning bolt moment. I got there and he had had a set of scores made. Um, so funny that I forget the name of the process now, but that they didn't have like real Xeroxes. They had this kind of, process on this purple paper that smelled really really strongly of chemicals almost like you know old blueprints that kind of thing and he gave me a set of scores on this purple paper and he had a, a small stool on the podium and I got to sit next to him while he conducted in the session and you know like I said it was a, it was a lightning bolt moment because I think one of the scores that made me want to write film music was To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, so, you know, at the age of, I think I was 10 or 11, I, I, I well knew who he was. And I was very aware of his work. It sounds like that was a profound experience. Yeah, it was. I, I, wish, I, I wish I could have like a, a bird's eye view or a, a, a video playback of, of that session. The, the, uh, the audio, the uh, the main title is online. It's it's on YouTube and it's it's a kick to listen to it and know that I was sitting there as a little boy. It's it's really fascinating to hear about how those unique encounters with the greats can can really be almost a harbinger of of things to come. I remember when I was talking with, I believe it was John Debney who told me about his engagement with the Sherman brothers. Um, during as, as a young uh, child and how that was really impactful too. So, but you also need to be very qualified to be able to make it big in, in this industry. <laughs> so it's not just the connections. And I think both of you have demonstrated that. It's, um, I don't know about qualified. I, I think it's, it's all about how hard can you work? You know, I think I've, I've been most of my life not even close to the most talented person in the room, but I could pretty much outwork most people. And that I think it's, it is more of a secret to, to my career than anything else is just being willing to really put in the extra time. I, I can def I think that's a, a very transferable skill across so many industries and, yeah. um, and, I, and I'm curious, and I want to lead into your Disney work, but in concert, no pun intended, in concert with your, you know, your encounters with Elmer Bernstein, you 
also had a very salient connection with Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering how, how that has played into your identity as a composer. Oh my, well, uh, again, that's, that's just an experience I'm enormously, enormously grateful to have had. Um, you know, not, not many people get to kind of be by the side and collaborate with and work with, you know, legends. And Jerry uh, was and is a legend. Um, it came about because on the movie Air Force One, they had hired Jerry um, as a replacement score to, uh, there was another score that had been written and it was, there was not much time to, um, to, the, to the release date. And so there was only three weeks of writing time and they needed 90 minutes of score. And that's just for people that don't know, um, that's an enormous amount of music to write. Um, so he quickly realized there was no way he could write all 90 and keep his standard. Uh, so we had been traveling together in Scotland with Robert Townsend and, and we did a series of Berez Saraband recordings that Robert produced, um, re-recording classic film scores with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And the purpose of this was, you know, mainly to, to bring new um, polished, um, great sounding versions to scores that had been either not forgotten or maybe not well represented on recordings. And, you know, by the end of the series, I'm not sure how many Bob produced, but it was, it was over 50 in that particular series. And so he, he started um, uh, re-recording Jerry's score and asked Jerry to come over. Well, the first one Jerry did was uh, Alex North's score to 2001, the unused score. And Jerry went over, because of course Alex wasn't alive at this point. And Jerry went over to London and conducted that recording. That was the first kind of, of that series. And then I started doing a bunch of them, mainly Bernard Herman, and, and Jerry was re-recording his own work, um, Papillon, Torah, 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 things like that. And so we would go on these junkets where we would do, you know, six or seven records in a trip. And so we would kind of alternate. And while he was out on the podium, I would be in the, in the booth producing and listening and and he would do the same for me when I was out conducting. And, you know, we stayed at the same hotel and had meals together and palled around and took the train to Edinburgh. And, you know, it was just a great opportunity to just hang out in a kind of a normal way, away from Los Angeles, away from distractions, and just hang out and, and listen to great stories. Um, so that's how I knew Jerry. And he asked if I would come in and write a third of that score which I did. And, you know, I won't go into too much detail, but it was just um, getting to be by the, his side and get inside his mind was, was something I'll, you know, I'll treasure always. What, what's kind of emerged to me in, in thinking about you sharing about those experiences and with Jerry Goldsmith is just how, you know, he's, even though his, 
career spanned many decades toward the end of his career was some really great Disney work, including um, the score for Mulan um, and even Soarin' Over California at Disneyland, which is just mm-hmm. an absolute treasure. And you're, you're, so whereas Jerry's contributions to Disney were more later in his career, really early in your career, you began engaging with the Walt Disney Company. And right. some of those earlier projects were for television film projects like Splash 2 and The Parent Trap 3 and these late 80s yeah. TV productions. Was, yeah, go a ahead. show called Polly, which mm-hmm. was, um, you know, it was uh, like a musical, Debbie Allen directed. Um, yeah, there were, those all come back to... Uh, one fine gentleman, uh, a man named Matt Walker, who um, has opened more doors for me than <laughs> than anybody times a hundred. Um, we have become brothers in arms, and um, we were born a week apart. It's funny we always wish each other happy birthday. But Matt Walker was was a um, creative VP of music at Disney at that time and still is, still is there. He's now um, the, uh, he's uh, chief executive of uh, feature animation at, at Disney. But Matt and I were just young guys and we were getting started and I don't know how I met Matt. I can't remember, but he hired me, I think it was for Splash 2, and then he hired me for something else and we had fun. Matt is a very hands-on uh, creative executive because he's a fine musician. Um, he's an excellent pianist and he's just a fine musician and a real producer. And so he would be there for all of the sessions and we'd collaborate and it was always a, a great collaboration. And everything that you mentioned came from Matt. Um, and him submitting me uh, from those TV movies and another thing called Davy Crockett was a mini series, Johnny Cash in it. And, um, and then Iron Will and movie called Indian Warrior and, you know, on and on and on. And then in 2001, uh, I had been doing features, um, you know, all over the place, and I had spent the last year and a half in 2001 doing a, a television show, which was mainly a, a synth score, a sample score, uh, which you know basically is the production of that is is yourself alone in a room playing every instrument, right? And I I'm just not cut out for that. Um, I, I'm an orchestral composer. That's how I was trained, that's what I like to do. And I spent a year and a half doing this show, which was just me and samples. And I was not a really happy guy after that experience. And then out of the blue came Return to Neverland. Matt just saved me, he really did. He saved me, I, 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 was, I was very down. And he said, here's this giant palette of, of wonderful animation and story and songs and come on in and just kick ass, just have as much fun as you want. I can hear that in the music when I listen to that score. 
that score is a, a score of somebody who's been released from bonds, you know. Let's then jump right into Return to Neverland and we can harken back to Iron Will uh, a bit later. You know, 20 years have now elapsed since that film, which is incredible. I mean, I still remember seeing it in theaters multiple times, but what's interesting too to think about is that this is a project that was through, you know, Disney Toon Studios, you know, television animation. They saw the potential of it and released it theatrically. And gosh, Joel, I mean, such a pleasure to talk with you because this is a score that it's attached to a film that perhaps doesn't get as much attention. It's a brilliant score and it has some really great uh, themes and, and leitmotifs for uh, certain characters. And it, it it's just effervescent. And when you give that perspective just now from a few minutes ago in terms of that release, I think that perfectly connects with some of the some of what actually exudes in terms of the character's experiences, right? That, mm. that freeing that Jane experiences when she first enters Neverland um, and that transition um, from a very dark, like brooding World War II in London to, yeah. um, to Neverland, which I know you described yeah. as like a Wizard of Oz type moment in the prior interview. So can, can you just talk about that process of being able to create magic for a, a universe that has Peter Pan which and Neverland, which has so much meaning for folks, and now you adding to add your stamp on it during what sounds like a, a really pivotal moment. Yeah, gosh, I mean, it was 20 years ago, so my memories are not particularly fresh, although the music is very present in my mind. Um, I just remember... It was almost like I hadn't had oxygen for a couple of years. And suddenly I, I just got put in a, you know, in an oxygen chamber and I could breathe and I could write and just write anything I wanted, just let it fly. And there's, there's real joy in that music. I think, you know, you can, you can hear, um, there's a lot of emotion in that music and, you know, an enormously supportive um, group of filmmakers, you know, uh, Kevin Lima, came in, wasn't the director that started the project, but they brought him in to finish the project. You know, Kevin is a brilliant director, animation director, um, Tarzan, one of many, and a wonderful person and great to collaborate with. And then there was Kevin and there was, again, Matt Walker, um, who is, is just such a supportive person for, for artists. And uh, I just felt, you know, safe and enabled to do my very best. Um, I remember Kevin turning to me at dinner after the first night of scoring in London. And back then we didn't have um, mock-ups so much, you know, and we did, but I don't remember mocking up a lot of this. I mean, I do remember I mocked up everything on Air Force One, but for some reason, maybe I did, but, I don't think there were a lot of mock-ups on this. So Kevin was hearing a lot of it for the first time and he just turned to me and he said, holy, where's, pardon me, where did that come from? Like, what's happening here? And it was a nice acknowledgement of the, the, kind, of, the kind of special energy that I, I felt like was you know, infused in that score um, and certainly the story. Another another wonderful memory 
the president of Disney Tunes, um, wonderful Sharon Morrill, uh, was on the trip and there's a really nice moment at the at the end when uh, you know uh, Peter Pan has been off being Peter Pan and Wendy is all grown up. This is years later and he's he's been having his adventure with Jane. Wendy's daughter. But at the end of the movie, he brings Jane back, he saves her and brings her back to London. And there's a moment when Peter and Wendy meet again. But then he meets her as an adult. And, you know, it was just probably the easiest thing I've ever scored because I just thought, wow, you just have to do a really quiet, emotional version of the second star to the right here. And it was a really well acted and, and animated scene. And we recorded it, we did a couple times through it. And uh, it was just lovely. I mean, it just worked so beautifully. They played so beautifully. And I looked back and Sharon and, many other people in the control room are just sobbing, <laughs> just ugly crying. <laughs> and it was very satisfying in a weird sort of way. Like, yep. Okay. This works. <laughs> I remember that being just the uh, ending being very gentle uh, with that tone. And, you know, one of the, there are a bunch of signature tracks in that film, in my opinion, but the one that really stands out is, Fight Through Neverland, um, mm -hmm. which is just, it's sweeping in terms of the orchestral um, score. It's just, it captures the majesty of discovering a new world. There's a lot of nice use of strings in it. Um, how do you reflect on like your own work uh, kind of being a bit removed from it now, years later, and, and being able to hear it either independently or within a, the context of the film and to know that it, it can have such an impact in translating that emotion on a, on such a high level. Mm. Gosh, yeah, I mean, that is always the objective is to, to translate emotion. And I think you're given good material, it's, it's easy to write. It's not easy, it's never easy, um, but it's easier to write music that means something to you, is meaningful. Um, I listen to, to that occasionally now when I hear it. And one thing I hear that is always kind of stands out to me is the amount of detail in it. Um, I was, <laughs> I was really making a, a Swiss watch. I mean, there, there is a lot going on. And as you say, light motifs and, um, counterpoint and, you know, um, String, you know, passages that are just ripping through the stratosphere and, and you know, indicating flying and just a lot of fun, fun stuff to play. And one of your light motifs, I mean, you you, you definitely create a distinct voice for each character. One of the more peculiar ones, I guess I should say, is for the octopus. Do you yeah. remember that? <laughs> yes. 
I think it's, it's there's a sense of silliness to it because yeah, yeah. it's the duality between Captain Hooks, who is so hard edged, and this just playful octopus who's taunting him, and it has like there's like a popping sound to kind of emulate what, <laughs> right. just the, the continued taunting of him. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And 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 like you said too, there was an opportunity for you with this film to carry over some elements of the original film in terms of like you know a, a new uh, take, if you will, of Second Star to the Right and some of those elements. What how how did you process being able to again capture elements of the original film, but translate it to a new context and ultimately a new generation because you're working with mm-hmm. Wendy's daughter Jane here. Yeah. Well, I, at the time I was doing it, it had been, you know, since I was a child that I had seen the original movie and maybe I, I only saw it once. So, you know, I had some research to do and I went back and um, I watched the film many times and I even got some of the scores to the original score, but the original score and the scoring style at that point was very different than, than it was in the early 2000s. And so I, I, I knew that the, the original style, while, while great, was not something that I wanted to employ for, um, for this film. Um, so yeah, if, it, if not that, what? Well, um, I can sort of fell back on what I like to do, which is is to write thematic material, write new themes, while incorporating, uh, you know, the original themes. And it's interesting because the, the 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 apart from the songs, the original themes in the movie are more thematic fragments. Um, Peter Pan doesn't really have a complete theme. You know, it's just the that's about it. It, it. it never it never evolves into something complete. Um, and so I, I took those those little fragments and I wove them in. And of course, we used the songs and then created some new songs. Jonathan Brooke wrote a couple of beautiful songs and. Uh, um, but I guess by and large, I felt like I wanted to start over and make make that score my own while being respectful to the original. Yeah, yeah I would say I'll Try is just a, a gorgeous song that, yeah. it, and it, because of that singer-songwriter quality to it, it, I think, also added a different tone and vibe to what was traditionally associated with Disney animation of the time as well. Mm. Jonathan, Jonathan is just a absolutely magnificent musician um, in every way, uh, as a singer, as a composer. She's a trained composer. Um, you know, she went to college and studied composition, and she's got a harmonic sense that is is really wonderful and unique to her, and very advanced. And her writing, I, I, I think. If you were to look at my iTunes and the, the albums I play the most consistently over the last 20 years, Jonathan would be in the top three of what I listen to when I'm not working. 
So yeah, I admire her work very much. Yeah, it's definitely very beautiful. And to, to kind of follow on the Peter Pan train just for a moment, you, you didn't leave Neverland because you ended up contributing the scores for the Tinkerbell series as mm -hmm. well. So did that, did that kind of stem from your work on Return to Neverland and the relationships that you had from Disney tunes? Yes, this again, all comes back, back to Matt Walker. Um, he, he brought me in on the Disney tunes series, which I think by the end, well, there was, I've lost count, but th there were at least 10 movies that I did, including the Tinkerbell movies. Um, and, you know, this is at a time when the kind of scoring I do, that I like, that I'm trained in, um, wasn't particularly in fashion, in, in the business, in the orchestral music as a whole kind of took a, a back seat for a while um, and scores were much more sample and synth driven sound effects driven um, and kind of more classically based orchestral scores were, were not the norm and uh, I felt like Matt and Disney tunes gave me like a port in the storm you know, a safe place to have the opportunity to score great projects doing what I do when, you know, that's definitely what's not the fashion and the style at the time. And I would, you know, kind of look around, look left and right and think, okay, would I want to do that movie? Probably not. Would, would I be good for this movie? Probably not. I, I think I'm right exactly where I'm supposed to be. And... I've told Matt this, I've always been very grateful that somebody knew, knew, knows what I do and appreciates it and casts me in a way where I'm perfectly cast for the job at hand. So, yeah, so, so all those movies were just so fun. And the Tinkerbell series, especially because it was the chance to create a, a new universe. Um, Tinkerbell was being built from the ground up as kind of a new Disney world. And um, John Lasseter had recently come in and taken over all of the animation and many other parts of, of Disney creatively. And he was overseeing this new Tinkerbell franchise and, and in fact had uh, some very creative ideas that kind of restructured the way the story was going and pointed us in a different direction. But there was a, there was a time when um, then I had to, not had to, but I created music, not just for um, this particular movie, but for the world for the, the fairies world. And there was an actual presentation that I did where, you know, I got up in a, in a room on a stage and I sat down at the piano and I played some of my themes. Um, I played some demos I'd done with using all kinds of ethnic instruments. I'm a woodwind player. So I, I played a lot of uh, penny whistles. And if you listen to those movies, you'll hear penny whistles and 
ocarinas all over it. And that's, that's all me. Um, so I brought, you know, that, that one part of my musical world into this. Um, and there was a lot of use of nature sounds, um, especially in the first movie, uh, nature sounds as musical sounds, as percussion, as um, little musical light motifs sometimes. And some of the things you hear are actual birds um, that I've kind of messed with sonically. And then, of course, you know, the, the whistles and the, the Irish music, which comes naturally to me. Um, so that was heavily infused and influenced by the music of Ireland. And by the end, I think we did four or five, six, six Tink movies, I think. Yeah, it was definitely a, a franchise for sure. And I know at one point there was the intention when they were redoing or planning to redo uh, Fantasyland at Walt Disney World that there was going to be mm -hmm. a very salient Pixie Hollow presence. And ultimately that um, kind of went to the wayside as, as the plans evolved. Was is, is that in connection to what you were describing earlier in terms of expanding the world of Tinkerbell or? Yeah, and there was, there was a, at least at Disneyland, there was a, a Tinkerbell right. world um, and it branched out into ice shows and you know, all this, this, different, this different kind of media. Um, yeah, the, the, that whole, that whole franchise utilized the music that we created for that, for, for that first uh, film. And, uh, and we're working on, I probably shouldn't really even talk about it, but we're working on a, a new project for theme parks, which involves this world. So that's all I'm gonna say about that, but <laughs> it ain't over. <laughs> Okay, I'll I'll leave it at that. I mean, I do I am aware of the the Neverland area for Tokyo Disney Sea, but I won't I I won't uh, make any assumptions. Thanks for sharing more about that, Joel, on the on the Peter Pan front. And I would like to take a step back in time because another major project that you uh, were involved with was Iron Will, which is just a just a classic Disney drama. I guess you could call it a sports film, but I, I see it as an adventure film, a period piece. It's, it's a beautiful movie. And its score is magnetic. It's etched in my mind for many reasons, um, in good ways. But one of the tracks that really stands out from it is The Race Begins, which is mm -hmm. a very energetic and poignant anthem that I feel like captures the film's sense of teamwork and triumph. And can you, I know we're talking about a score almost three decades old now, but but what are your recollections of creating music associated with ultimately a very buoyant, proud sentiment? Because it, it is all about, you know, you know, winning the race and also just the, uh, a love that many folks have for, for dogs and, and, yeah. and what they mean in our lives. Right. Well, Iron Will. Um my first movie or my first studio movie. And boy, was I nervous. Um, Charles Hayde, um, fine director and actor, uh, hired me. And again, Matt Walker teed that up, uh, got me in, to be considered for it. Uh, and then Charles hired me. 
And Charlie's got a great musical sense. I mean, he he is a real aficionado. He he's got the biggest record collection of anybody I've ever seen. And he just he just collects cool stuff. He always wants to know about cool. What's the next cool music to discover? He's a real discoverer of wonderful things. And Charlie had very defined ideas about the score before I even came in. Um, the score, the, the, the movie was artfully tempted. Um, for those of you that don't know what a temp track is, uh, basically the filmmakers and music editor in particular pick out uh, existing scores to do a temporary soundtrack just to give them an idea of what's going on dramatically. And if it's done right, it can be a, a good temp score. It can be as effective as, as a final score. And I think it was in this case. And in fact, um, you know, I freely admit this, there, there were there's some real cases in terms of, it was communicated to me in terms of the upper ranks of the studio that they were a little nervous, I think, if, if the truth were to come out now about, you know, wasn't a teeny budget movie. It, was, it wasn't a huge budget movie, but it was fairly, fairly good size. And, and you know, giving a, basically a kid this movie with no credits, zero credits, other than Indiana Jones. Um, which was a good credit, but it wasn't a feature credit. So there was some nerves there. And there were there were times when, you know, I strayed from the temp and I would go back and redo things because they wanted it closer to the temp. Um, and I can really hear that now. Uh, you know, it's obvious what it, what it was temped with. And that's not something you ever want to, to have happen, but, on the other hand, the circumstances were the circumstances, and I was nobody to say, I'm not going to do that. Um, so it is what it is. But there's a, there's a lot of music in there that is is purely from an original place, and certainly the thematic material, the themes, um, and a lot of music that you know comes from my heart. Uh, and it still communicates, I think. I mean, in fact, um, on the temp track of the one of the episodes of the Orville that I just finished, Seth used Iron Will in one of these huge pivotal scenes. And in this case, I said, you know what? I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna write something like this. I'm gonna imitate the temp track of my own score, and uh, just as a, a fun wink and a nod to Iron Will. I mean, I think people that know that score really, really well will will hear colors of it in this in this score. So it's just it's just a little tribute to that film. It's it's like a, a great East, musical Easter egg, I think. <laughs> yep, it's it's in there for those that um, want to go looking for it. Up, it's uh, in show eight. So off you go. There you go. Speaking of Iron Will, what's, what I always find interesting as a consumer of music is to recognize how it is employed in different spaces. And at mm. times, film scores are used uh, in trailers of films. And your yeah. Iron Will theme was very famously associated with the trailer for my favorite movie, Toy Story. 
So that was actually my initial exposure to Iron Will by virtue of hearing it in that that trailer. Yes. I I don't know that I knew that. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll send you the link after we record. (laughs) Okay. Well, that that would be fun. I know it was used. um, I would hear it now and then. They used it a lot in the Olympics, in the Winter Olympics. I'd be watching some event and probably cross-country skiing or something, you know, that is incredibly labor-intensive and they'd start playing Iron Will and <laughs> it's really funny. But yeah, it's 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 kind of had its own life for sure, which which is fun and I'm grateful for. Along those lines, how do you as the composer process that in terms of your work not only being utilized for the context of the specific endeavor in which it was originally enlisted, but rather, as mm-hmm. you're mentioning with the Olympics, even for years at Epcot, uh, the Fountain of Nations yeah. utilized the track too. Yeah, and uh, Tomorrowland at Disneyland, I'd be walking through there and I would hear it, um, California Adventure as well. Um, it's cool, you know, it's 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 great when the music lives on. I've I've always said you can't go halfway with with material from filmmakers like Disney because they last forever. I mean, if you if you write something less than your best, that's going to be around in a movie. It's going to be around forever. This this stuff sticks. And it goes from generation to generation. And so I always put a lot of pressure on myself when doing these projects to do the very best I could at that moment for that reason. So that I didn't regret it one day when I, when I heard it, thought, ah, I could have, I could have done better than that. Well, I, I think anybody would, would uh, argue that Iron Will's uh, a really strong piece of your catalog. And, mm-hmm. you know, speaking of, of theme parks, just to diverge for a moment before we wrap up, um, your, your work has been also featured uh, prominently in the theme parks, including um, for the popular Mickey and the Magician show at Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris. Mm. What opportunities did you have in that situation where you're actually like reinventing uh, notions of popular songs like A Friend Like Me from Aladdin or, or others? Yeah. Oh, that was lots and lots of fun. Um, again, Andrew Matt Walker, um, who shepherded that project and brought me in, um, thankfully. And, you know, what a thing to, to write a show like a half an hour show for it's going to be done twice a day, seven days a week, maybe more than twice a day. Um, but yeah, still in the classic Disney mold, um, but taking songs and there were sequences that were built around classic Disney songs. So there was a lot of arranging, some original composition, um, lots of fun things, lots of choirs and, and solo singers and big orchestral stuff smaller orchestral stuff yeah really fun as well the uh, 
the fireworks show, uh, Disney Dreams that they did there. For I think that's no longer running, but uh, for years that was on seven days a week, every night of the year. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, one of my favorite moments in my career was when I went to Paris to see the Disney Dream show for the first time. And it's about a half an hour, maybe 20 minutes of projection, uh, pyro, uh, spectacular on the castle. They use the castle and project images onto it. And um, it's really extraordinary what they can do with projection now. It was kind of unique at the time, and now you see you see that a lot everywhere. Disney has made great use of, of project, projection technology. But in the case of this show, um, on average, I was told 25,000 people a night see the show every night of the year. So, you know, quickly that gets into the millions and millions of people having seen it. And there's a, there's a moment actually when the show is over, Big, big, spectacular fireworks. You think, okay, this is it. This is as big as it's going to get. And it gets bigger and it gets louder and more spectacular. And it just keeps going and going and going. Finally, there's this grand explosion and the choirs and the orchestra thunder. And, and then it's all over. And everyone's like, Phew, boy, that was really something. And Matt had the idea that... Um, you know, after something like that, it would be great to just have a little soft piece of music to send people off on their way, you know, because the park is closing. And um, So we took one of the themes that I, I wrote for that show and we made a song out of it. And we got the great um, Irish singer, Cara Dillon, to come in and she sang it beautifully and her husband Sam played beautiful guitars on it and we kind of almost did it as a as a whim at the last minute but it's kind of it's kind of a lullaby and so I was standing there at the booth and I was watching families uh, walk quietly out fathers with their kids on their shoulders on the shoulder and just a bunch of tired kids and families having had a great day walking out almost silent, just listening to this lullaby. And it was such a beautiful moment. And I thought, this happens every night with 25,000 people. And I really, really enjoyed that. That re really touched me. I've, I found that very, very satisfying to know that all these children are going off to bed after an amazing day with this song in their ears, uh, you know, yeah, just a really nice thought. Yeah, it's a beautiful sentiment. And I would say it probably likely extends to, you know, hearing pieces of your score before certain folks fall asleep. Like, uh, I, like you know, some of those Return to Neverland melodies or Tinkerbell even, I yeah. can see that also having that same effect. Um, as, as we wrap up, Joel, I, I guess I'm wondering, and I know we talked about the Orville a little bit prior to us recording, but can you talk about any current or future projects that you have in the works that you can talk about? Yes, well, there's the, there's the project for, um, for um, Imagineering that I'll be working on. Much of this stuff has been um, 
postponed due to the pandemic. Um, but I'm continuing to work on American Dad. Uh, and now that the Orville is, is complete, um, you know, I produce uh, and, and often arrange the albums for Seth MacFarlane, my great colleague. And so um, I'm going to be putting that hat back on and um, we're starting to plan recordings to, to, to go record the, the next several records. Um, we do these, we tend to do them at a, at a time because we, uh, several at a time because we do them in, in London. And so we try and you know, maximize our trips to do as much as we can. Uh, so yeah, so planning that and, and who knows, who knows what the future brings. I'll, I'll be eager to, to follow the, whenever the Imagineering work uh, can reveal itself further and, and maybe getting a, a trying to find that uh, iron will Easter egg in, in that episode as well. Oh, I'll send that to you. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you the inside info. Okay, cool. Appreciate it. Well, as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you some Disney relate Disney music related questions. Oh, um, but I promise there aren't any right or wrong answers. It's just based on your opinion. So I'm not All gonna right. I'm not gonna ask you what instrument is played at the 324 mark of the original Peter Pan. No, that's not an index. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I bet you would maybe know some things about that for sure, but oh, yeah. so and these are some questions I ask all of my guests and then I'll throw out a random question as well. So first off, Joel, is there a Disney soundtrack that you listened to most while growing up? Yeah, I'd say the Jungle Book. I had the Jungle Book on LP. Yeah, that was, that was a favorite for sure. Any reason why it stood out to you? I don't know, it was kind of jazzy, you know, had those cool songs. The Bare Necessities and, you know, Louis Prima. I didn't know who it was, who he was when I was a kid, but yeah, some really, really fun music in that, in that score. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Most recently? Wow. Well, there's some... <laughs> Just some sticky songs, not always the best ones get stuck, um, as we all well know. I, I don't know why, but the other week I had the song Following the Leader stuck in my head. I don't even remember hearing it. I just remember walking around thinking, why am I singing follow, Following the Leader in my head? It is a sticky song, though. Yeah, maybe it should be retitled to following the composer. But um, <laughs> see, my bet is that you, you've just been entrenched in Neverland so long that it somehow uh, in, infiltrated your subconscious. Yeah, I mean, my, my favorite song, which is not the question you asked, um, is Second Start of the Ride, which I think is just a, a magical song, no pun intended. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and the, gotta love that chorus too from the, the original 50s chorus. That's just a time yeah. capsule there. Yeah, and I have the, the, the original, um, I have the, the sheet music for the choral arrangement, which is a masterclass in choral arranging. 
you know, uh, things I never, I never would have thought to try and their tricks of getting that Disney sound uh, that I discovered once I started analyzing the score to, you know, it's, it's a very particular choral style, the Disney choral thing. And, and it wasn't until I got that, my hands on that score that I kind of figured out what was going on, which was lots and lots of doublings for your musician listeners. Um, doublings at the octave, like crazy. Uh, you know, usually choir parts, it's kind of SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, you know, so you've got four things going on. But then if you t start reinforcing those with taking the sopranos and suddenly you have the basses or the tenors singing two octaves down what the sopranos are singing in addition to their own part, they divide the tenors three or four ways. So if you do that with the sopranos and, and all the way down, suddenly you've got 12 to 16 individual parts going at once. Um, real stylistic stuff from a, another place in time where, um, you know, if you don't go looking for it, you would have no idea how they do that, or I wouldn't. That's really cool that you had the opportunity to to see that firsthand. Um, yeah. Another question for you is, what Disney film do you feel is the most underrated music? So music that does not perhaps get the do that it deserves. Hmm. Could be songs, could be score, could be a mix. Speaking of animation? Anything Disney. I'm blanking. I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that. That's quite all right. Last question for you. This is a, a unique question just for you. Who is your favorite character within the world of Peter Pan? Well, I mean, I think they're not a character. They're a group of characters, but I've always loved the Lost Boys. You know, just as a group, they're just so much fun. Um, always getting into trouble either that that or um smee i relate to smee yeah the, you know we all we all like a good deal of whimsy and those characters uh, afford them as we wrap up joel how can listeners follow your work and you on online as well to to get more acquainted with uh, your your body of soundtracks and scores Oh gosh, well, I have a, a website, um, which is just simply joelmcneely.com. And for now, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm not sure how much longer I'll, I'll be doing that, but for now I am. And, um, you know, the website keeps pretty much updated on, on what's going on and what the recent projects are. You can always find out. And then, you know, pretty much everything is available online to stream. Um, there's some obscure stuff that I wish was available that isn't, like the score to holes. Um, I get requests all the time for the score to holes, which I would happily post, um, but I'm just afraid I would get in trouble. You know, you, they didn't want to do a soundtrack for that because they had a song soundtrack and they were afraid it would confuse the buyers to have two different soundtracks. So, so that one never got, got released. And, um, and I would love for that one to have its day, but yeah. 
so yeah. Well, and I, I am also a huge fan of, of Flipper and that score. That was effervescent. Yeah. So I know it's not Disney, but it's it's pretty good stuff. I might say so. Yeah, that was that was fun. Um, again, really thematically driven. I got to work with <coughs> with uh, um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, um, and uh, yeah, really enjoyable project. Yeah, you have such a, such a great body of work. Um, and gosh, I mean, as I was discovering even and, and learning more about your background, how how many projects across so many different spheres of Disney you've contributed to. So, Joel, thank you so much for your time, lending your insights and uh, giving us a, a taste of what's to come as well. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. And thank you again to Joel McNeely for joining me on this episode of the podcast. You can hear some of Joel's latest work on The Orville, New Horizons, currently streaming on Hulu, and many films that Joel has scored for Disney are available to watch on Disney+. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.